Hey, listener, thank you for joining us for this installment of the Restoration Project's weekly podcast. We are currently studying the Book of Ruth. Many people approach this well-known story as a romance between Ruth and Boaz, but it's a bit more than that. A lot more, actually. It's a story of grief and loss, bitterness and resentment. It's a story of including the stranger. It's a story of the radical and costly commitment modeled by some of the book's main characters and God's unending faithfulness even in the midst of tragedy. Ultimately, it's a story of redemption and restoration and hope. There is a lot to consider in this beautiful and ancient work of art. And as we hope to make clear, it points us ahead to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Enjoy the episode. So I'm going to be reading from Ruth chapter 2. Buckle up, we're going to do the whole thing. So, Now Naomi had a respected relative, a man of worth, through her husband from the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field so that I may glean among the ears of grain behind someone in whose eyes I might find favor. Naomi replied to her, Go, my daughter. So she went. She arrived and she gleaned in the field behind the harvesters. By chance, it happened to be that the portion of the field that belonged to Boaz, who was from the family of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. He said to the harvesters, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Boaz said to his young man, the one who was overseeing the harvesters, To whom does this young woman belong? The young man who was overseeing the harvesters answered, She is a young Moabite woman, the one who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab. She said, please let me glean so that I might gather up grain from among the bundles behind the harvesters. She arrived and has been on her feet from the morning until now and has sat down for only a moment. Boaz said to Ruth, haven't you understood my daughter? Don't go glean in another field. Don't go anywhere else. Instead, stay here with my young women. Keep your eyes on the field that they are harvesting and go along after them. I've ordered the young men not to assault you. Whenever you are thirsty, go to the jugs and drink from what the young men have filled. Then she bowed down, face to the ground, and replied to him, How is it that I've found favor in your eyes that you notice me? I'm an immigrant. Boaz responded to her, Everything that you did for your mother-in-law after your husband's death has been reported fully to me, how you left behind your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people you haven't known beforehand. May the Lord reward you for your deed. May you receive a rich reward from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to seek refuge. She said, May I continue to find favor in your eyes, sir, because you've comforted me and because you've spoken kindly to your female servant, even though I'm not one of your female servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, eat some of the bread, and dip your piece in the vinegar. She sat alongside the harvesters, and he served roasted grain to her. She ate, was satisfied, and had leftovers. Then she got up to glean. Boaz ordered his young men, Let her glean between the bundles, and don't humiliate her. Also, pull out some from the bales for her and leave them behind for her to glean, and don't scold her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, then threshed what she had gleaned. It was about an ephah of barley. She picked it up and went into town. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She brought out what she had left over after eating her fill and gave it to her. Her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? May the one who noticed you be blessed." She told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi replied to her daughter-in-law, 
May he be blessed by the Lord who hasn't abandoned his faithfulness with the living or with the dead. Naomi said to her, the man is one of our close relatives. He is one of our redeemers. Ruth the Moabite replied, furthermore, he said to me, stay with my workers until they finished all of the harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women so that the men don't assault you in another field. Thus she stayed with Boaz's young women, gleaning until the completion of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. The word of God for the people of God. So if you have spent any amount of time with us over the last month, you should be familiar with the story of Boaz. But for those of you that are visiting or those of you who just need a healthy reminder, I'm going to go over the story here a bit. When I was in my education program in undergrad, my advisor always used to say, review, review, review. Basically, what we have here in the book of Ruth is the story of a family. We have a family of four, Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, and Kilion, who went from their home in Bethlehem because there was a famine in the land and crossed over to the east of the Jordan River into the land of Moab, where Malon and Kilion were married to Ruth and Orpah. During the time in which this family was in Moab, seeking refuge and trying to find food, Naomi watched her husband die and her two sons die. And Naomi was left with her two daughters-in-law attempting to figure out what in the world to do next. We've talked about in the ancient Near East how the fate of a widow was completely in the hands of the charity of other people. This wasn't the best time in which to be a widow um, because you had no security, you had no ties to the land, you had no potential food. And for these women, they were trying to figure out what it was that they were going to do. And Naomi decided that they were going to go back to Bethlehem, back to her home, back to where she has come from. And we've played around with chapter one a bit, trying to understand the mind of Naomi as she was going back to where she came from uh, sometime 10 years prior. The feelings that she may have felt as she goes back to a people who saw her leave with her family. Maybe as she left, people kind of looking at them crooked saying, you shouldn't leave because you need to stay here and pray that God will be faithful to you here in the land. But as she's going back into this town, figuring out who she is and and who she can trust and and what she can expect from God. On the way, her daughters-in-law are going, traveling with her to Bethlehem. She turns and says, you guys need to go back home. You need to go back specifically to the house of your mothers, which is a weird thing to say in this time frame. But what Naomi is trying to say is you guys need to go back because the only way that you'll have a chance is if you go back to where you were raised so that you can get married again because I cannot give you any safety and any security. I have nothing for you. Orpah takes her up on the deal and says, okay, mom-in-law, I'm gonna go back home. There's no judgment within the text. There's nothing uh, that's meant to diminish Orpah's faith. She just simply goes back home. She makes a practical decision and we don't hear about her ever again. Ruth, however, has this, this moment that has become iconic in the Old Testament where she says, no, stop telling me to leave you. This is after the fourth time that Naomi, her mother-in-law, has pleaded with her, go back home. And she says, no, stop telling me to abandon you. Wherever you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Wherever you die and you are buried, I too will die and be buried. So we have these two women, 
Naomi, who has seen her complete family decimated by death, and Ruth also seeing the death of her husband and now going into a foreign land, not quite knowing what to expect. And in chapter two, what we looked at last week was Ruth beginning to take it upon herself to become the provider and the protector, the one who would take risks on behalf of her family, to say, in a sense, to Naomi, Naomi, I will take care of you. All we learn in the beginning of of chapter two is how Naomi just kind of stays home. We don't know why. We don't know if it's because she's too old to go out into the fields to uh, to make a meaningful contribution. We don't know if she's sick. We don't know if she's just completely overcome by grief and sorrow. But we see Ruth beginning to step up to the plate saying, let me go glean for us that I might find favor in this landowner wherever I end up to have food for us, to take care of us. And last week, we we looked about how within this particular socio-historical and socio-religious context, there was laws built into the Old Testament legal code that was encouraging and demanding even that landowners would uh, leave some of their crops for the immigrants and the widows and the orphans, the people on the margins and the outskirts. Texts like Leviticus 19, it says, when you harvest your land's produce, you must not harvest all the way to the edge of your field and don't gather up every remaining bit of your harvest. Also do not pick your vineyard clean or gather up all the grapes that have fallen there. Leave these items for the poor and the immigrant. I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 24 says something similar. Whenever you are reaping the harvest of your field and you leave some grain in the field, don't go back and get it. Let it go to the immigrants, the orphans, and the widows so that the Lord your God blesses you in all that you do. This was built into the, to the law code. However, when Ruth goes to the field, she doesn't know what to expect. And she also doesn't even know if the landowners or the people in charge of the fields will allow her to glean. Some commentators wonder if there's, uh, we have these laws, but we don't have a lot of texts that, that deal with this other than the one that we're looking at here. And it may have been that the landowners were consumed by greed and not wanting to share their stuff with random immigrants or widows or orphans. Let's not go back and um, over-exaggerate the morality of this people. And you could imagine perhaps in our own context as landowners in America, if people would be necessarily wanting to allow that to take place. It doesn't take much on your Facebook feed to see if that would be the case or not. But Ruth ends up in a field with with Boaz and begins to, to glean. The author of this story will not let us forget one important fact, however. Ruth is from Moab. When Boaz goes and talks to his person in the field, he says, to whom does this woman belong? Now, the way that we have read that as 21st century Americans who are addicted to Netflix and like to watch a good rom-com from time to time, we imagine Boaz saying, to whom does she belong? Va-va-voom. We might not throw in the va-va-voom, but I think it lends itself for some interesting uh, analysis. (laughs) The young man says, she's a young Moabite woman, the one who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab. Uh, My doctoral supervisor says, it's as if the story says, have you got it? She's a Moabite. 
This is the point that cannot be missed. And in this story, Ruth is continually known as Ruth the Moabite. It's impossible for us to forget where she comes from. Back to Boaz, because I don't want to leave you hanging on that. This is not probably the romantic comedy where Boaz is trying to romance Ruth. There's really not any of that in the story. We'll see next week, this is actually, Ruth is the one who takes the initiative and she goes to do some risque maneuvers on the threshing ground floor. (laughs) You've been there, I know it, yeah. Um, But in this text, Boaz is just wanting to know who does she belong to? What's my responsibility here? What do I need to provide for her as she is now standing in one of my fields? Boaz, as we'll see, is a person of character. He's noble. He's just. And he wants to take care of people, but the author keeps screaming at us, she's from Moab. In the second week of this sermon series, we talked about Moab a bit. And I'm sorry that the screens are a bit small, so that might not show up real, real well. But basically, we have Bethlehem on the west side of the Jordan River, which is up up at the top of that body of water, which is the Dead Sea. So from Bethlehem to Moab, you'd have to go west across the Jordan River and then south. Those lines there, people don't really know quite where to put them. Um, But Moab being across the Jordan River in foreign territory. Now here's the important part, and we've talked about this uh, in the past. Moab, it was an undesirable location. This is why in the very beginning of the story, when these people go to Moab, an ancient reader would have said, what? slowly back away and don't even withhold judgment because them going there meant a lot at the time. It was an undesirable location due to the Old Testament's generally negative depiction of that territory. So says Catherine Dubsockenfeld um, writing on the book of Ruth. And there's a few stories within the Old Testament that help us to find an anchor here. And I just want to review this because this is important for what we're talking about this evening. The story of the origin of the Moabites, as we've talked about in Genesis 19, it was rooted in the story of Lot, who escapes from Sodom and Gomorrah and God's judgment there. Lot escapes, his wife dies on the trip, and he's left with his two daughters. And as they are um, thinking through the aftermath of what has taken place, the daughters look around and they say, there's no one where we are. We're in huge trouble. So I've got a great idea, sis. Let's get dad drunk and then he'll sleep with me on night one and then we'll get him drunk again and he'll sleep with you on night two. It's an odd story, um, but here we have in Genesis 19, the birth, I believe, of the oldest daughter. Her son is Moab, the father of the Moabite people. The son of the second daughter is Ammon, uh, father of the Ammonites. And we see these two notorious enemies of Israel and their lineage that goes back to this really funky old story that doesn't speak highly upon these people and their origins. Throughout the Old Testament, similar stories that kind of root Moab as a negative character. When Israel was leaving uh, from Egypt and from forced labor and servitude, when Moses takes them across the Red Sea and they're getting ready to enter into the promised land, the Moabites kind of stop them on their their tracks. They don't allow them passage through. There's this whole story about the king of, of Moab who's wanting an Israelite prophet to curse them. We see how this plays out where Moab is is a negative character. 
In Numbers 25, we have the Israelites having sexual relations with the Moabite women that causes God's ire. It causes anger and, and punishment that they would intermarry with this people. We see again in Deuteronomy 23, I think that this sort of climaxes the understanding of Moab in the Old Testament because in the law code of Deuteronomy 23, there's an exclusionary text where Moab, and I also believe uh, the Moabites and the Ammonites are not allowed to enter into the assembly of the Lord, which basically means they are not allowed to worship with Israel. They are not allowed to assimilate within the people of Israel. They are to be left outside because there is something different about them. And Deuteronomy is wanting to set up these restrictions within the law code that Israel would not interact with people that could potentially derail their commitment to God. The Moabites throughout the Old Testament are an extremely negative people, which makes what Ruth says to Boaz interesting. And I think this is kind of the hook on which I want to speak tonight. And I just have a few comments. When Boaz is um, beginning to show Ruth favor, beginning to allow her to glean within his fields. And not only that, he kind of even puts her up in the ranks a bit. He affords her with more um, opportunities than a normal gleaner would have. And Ruth says, how is it that I've found favor in your eyes that you would notice me? There's a wordplay here between the, that you would notice me and what Ruth says, I'm an immigrant. They both come from the same Hebrew root, nakar. But Ruth is saying, I'm not from here. Do you understand what you're doing? Do you understand what you're allowing me to have? This doesn't make any sense. I'm from Moab. And I've learned just from hanging out with you guys that what you think of us isn't usually great. We don't know how long Ruth and Naomi have been back in Bethlehem. We do know that when they show up, the women of the town say, could that be Naomi? What's happened to her? She looks so old and haggard and miserable. And Naomi herself says, yeah, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, I'm bitter. I went away full, but God has brought me back empty. We don't know how long we're there. And while it's not good for us to read into the text, for a foreigner from Moab to be in Bethlehem, it might not have been the safest place for them to be because of the ways that the Israelites were thinking about these foreign people. Again, we wanna think the best of Israel and just think that when the foreigners and the immigrants came in, they welcomed them with open arms and said, come on in, we'd love to help you glean. That's probably not the case and it doesn't take much for us just to stop for a second and wonder about our own community and our own people and how willing we are to accept the immigrant. And what's neat about this passage is we can go super literal with that, the immigrant, the people that are not from here and how we welcome them or do not welcome them. Or we could also think about immigrant as a metaphor for people that are on the margins and the outskirts, the people that don't have as much money as we do, that don't dress as nice as we do, that don't smell as nice as we do, that don't have the homes that we do, that don't have the interests that we do, the people that are not part of our tribe and how we seem to section those people off within this passage, and this isn't a huge reading in, it's just very, very um, 
lowly under the surface. This text is about including the other. This text is about the prejudice that the Israelites and we have against people not like us and how willing we might be to allow them to glean in our fields. This text is about how we draw walls between different people groups. Now, Boaz, we learn about him in in this passage that he was a respected relative. That's a weird term in the Hebrew, and people are kind of um, not really sure what's going on there. What we know from the very beginning of his introduction is he's a person that is related to Naomi, and by default, Ruth. He's a person that can actually help them. He's a person that can become someone of significance in their life. He's a respected relative and he's a man of worth. He's a person that has the means to help these two women. And we see how this plays out in this passage. Boaz is a man who greets his workers in the name of Yahweh. A lot of commentators make a huge deal over this and we kind of just read right by it. But when Boaz shows up in the field, the first thing that he does is say, may Yahweh be with you. And they respond, and Yahweh with you, something like that. I'm, I'm butchering the quote, but he, he greets them in the name of the Lord. And every commentator has said something to the effect of, this demonstrates that Boaz cares about his people and his people respect him. There's like this relationship between them that may have been weird at the time. And we see how this plays out later as he's eating lunch with his workers. Boaz is a person who greets his workers in the name of Yahweh. He's a man who cares for the people and he follows the law. When you show up as an immigrant in Boaz's field, he's not going to disobey Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He's going to allow people to glean. He's going to help people as best as he can. He cares for them. He follows the law. He's an an emblematic figure of what it looks like to follow Yahweh. He's a man who gives generously. And in this text, he's a man who gives generously above and beyond what is required of him. He's a man to which we can look and gain inspiration. Boaz is the one who is helping the immigrant and in Ruth's case, the widow, and going above and beyond. And here, again, let's, let's distance ourselves from the who does she belong to? Because some people are very quick to say, oh, the reason why Boaz is helping this woman is because he likes how she looks. Eh, the ancient rabbis would have a quibble with you on that one because the way that they describe Ruth, she's not like this sexy gleaner who shows up to the field. In fact, people would say that Boaz catches her eye and wonders about her because she is so modest. I don't know what to do with that, but I mean, the the ancient rabbis aren't saying like this is ancient love story between Boaz and I don't know why I keep going into this (laughs) shimmy, but it's, it's not best seen as a romantic comedy or Boaz trying to seduce this woman. It seems rather that Boaz is trying to help and provide. There's also one other thing that I should just throw in at this point. We, th- we probably think when we're reading this story that Boaz and Ruth are similar in, in age. Most people though would say that if Boaz is like this successful landowner, he's probably old-ish. And if you're a successful landowner in the ancient Near East, you might have a wife. There's like all kinds of questions that we don't know about Boaz. And like, I can just see like the 
the air being let out of the balloon, they're like, oh no, another polygamy text in the Old Testament. And I'm not saying that, but maybe. I, I don't know, but what we do know is that Boaz is giving generously above and beyond what he's required to do to help Ruth and Naomi and this family. We do know that Boaz understands the situation and the story because he says, I've heard, Ruth, of what you've done. I've heard of the character that you have. I've heard how you left everything and now you're caring for your mom. And I also know that you probably can't do much on your own. So I want to help you. This is like the undertone of of this story here. And this is what happens after, in the new bit of text that that Meredith read so eloquently for us tonight, Boaz says, come over here. This is lunchtime. And and the text again in in 2.7, it talks about how Ruth has been at this field and we don't know if she's ever sat down. She's like not taking a break because the guy who's in charge of the field says, look, man, she's been here for a long time and she's been working really hard. We don't know how to interpret that, but we know that she didn't just show up and then get a free lunch. We know that she has been working, she's been doing something. And then at lunchtime, when Boaz is sitting down at the table, the metaphorical table with all of his workers, which I think is a beautiful image, he says to Ruth, come on over, eat some bread with us. And now just imagine that you're a widow in the ancient Near East, your mother-in-law is staying home and you say, I've got to go out and glean. I doubt that they had a lot of Snickers bars in the cupboard. This may have been like her first meal in in quite some time, but he says, come eat some of the bread and dip your piece in the vinegar. I tried to figure out what in the world's going on here because we don't like to dip bread in vinegar. I guess balsamic vinegar, that sounds actually kind of nice. But most people would say that this is like some kind of a sour sauce that is put on a bread to invest it with, um, so it's not so dry, so it helps it to be moist. Apologies to the people in the room who do not like the word moist. I'll just say it one more time, moist. Um, and to allow the, the bread to have more spices, but he's trying to give her some bread and, and help her to dip her piece in, in the vinegar. And then the story actually continues where he, he hands her some roasted grain, which is a staple of the Israelite diet. It says in um, chapter 14, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, eat some of the bread and dip your piece in the vinegar. So she sat alongside of the harvesters and he served roasted grain to her. That term there, we don't really know quite what to do with it, what it, what it means for him to, to serve her, but it's like a handy sort of term. Like there's hands involved here. So he might be passing something to her. She might be receiving something from him. But in the ancient Near East, this is a massive move on Boaz's part. Hey, foreign woman, who's a widow, who within this town might be viewed as kind of sketchy. Come have food with us. Kate and I went to Chincoteague yesterday, celebrating our ninth anniversary. I'll tell you, I'll tell you two stories about that. The first one is, um, Kate has been begging to go stand up paddle boarding for quite some time. This has nothing to do with Ruth. There's no tie between stand up paddle boarding and Ruth. Um, we got on our boards, we found ourselves in something of a restricted zone. We ran our boards aground on a sandbar. I fell off, sliced my feet all up on the oyster stuff. Then I had to like, Kate kind of got on hers and paddled across and I had to like pick up mine and I'm in the back and she was a little bit ahead of me. I probably said some things I shouldn't have said <laughs> as she's up there and I'm carrying my board across. We made it back okay. We did end up enjoying a nice time. But we also found ourselves at this... Um, 
Oh, it was a bar. And we found ourselves there <laughs> and we were killing some time because basically all we wanted to do is eat tacos. We wanted to paddleboard and then we wanted to eat tacos for lunch at this place called Pico Taqueria, which if you've ever been to Chincoteague, it's ridiculously incredible. And if you haven't been, you should go. And then we wanted to go to a restaurant from one of our friends who catered um, Rachel and Ryan's wedding rehearsal. She has her own little food truck there. We wanted to go there for dinner. So we went for tacos, got stuffed, and then we had like two or three hours until it seemed like a reasonable time for us to eat dinner. Although with kids now, 4.30 is not out of the realm of possibility for us to have dinner. But we were sitting at this bar, uh, just killing time. And it was like entrancing because you could tell that the people that were surrounding us, they were from the island. You know what I mean? And they kept saying like, oh, did you hear about so-and-so? Yeah, I guess last night she fell off the dock and she was having a really good time. And like the whole island is talking about it, is what they kept saying as, as new people would show up. The whole island is talking about this. And like you put yourself in an ancient context, the whole island of Bethlehem, not an island, the whole region knows who Ruth is and might be viewing her as somewhat of a sketchy character, but Boaz invites her to the table and perhaps the workers, I'm really reading in here, but you don't even know the mindset of the workers as this rogue Moabite woman is showing up to the table. And as Boaz, this respected noble character is giving her roasted grain and bread and telling her to dip it into the vinegar. And it's like caring for her and her family. Commentators make a huge deal about this. Um, it says, Ruth is no longer at this moment an outsider at the margin. Instead, she sits at the master's table, as it were, alongside his reapers. Boaz himself hands her food. He is creating or observing a ceremony of sharing. Another commentator, this is Daniel Block. He says, obviously this verse is not simply about feeding the hungry. The narrator hereby shows how Boaz took an ordinary occasion and transformed it into a glorious demonstration of compassion, generosity, and acceptance. In short, the biblical understanding of chesed is being lived out here. We'll talk more about chesed as we go, but it's this understanding that he is demonstrating compassion and generosity and acceptance of a figure who spent most of her time probably on the margins and the outskirts and who says, why would you treat me this way? I'm an immigrant. When Boaz invites Ruth to the table, he is extending her an offer of grace. He is demonstrating for her compassion. I have this picture up here because this is like one of those chic foodie things that's pretty hip right now. This is called a dinner in white where you have these invitations and you get all decked out in white and you carry around a table and a tablecloth and all of your cutlery and silverware and probably food too. And then once you're on the, the guest list, they send out a secret public location where all of you in white assemble and put your tables down and you begin to eat together with everyone else clothed in white. Doesn't it sound marvelous? And you pay them to, to be allowed to do that as you bring your own table and food. It's so glorious. There was one in Baltimore a few months ago, I think, and it sold out if anybody's curious. You can't get any more tickets. Um, but here we, we see how even in our culture, the things that happen around the table demonstrate compassion 
and acts of grace and inclusion. The people who end up at your table usually don't end up there by accident. They're people that you want to assimilate into your life or if they are family, should be assimilated into your life, even if you may be disagreeable towards their general demeanor. (laughs) We see here in the book of Ruth a hint of inclusion. Now I have on the screen here Ruth and Ezra and Nehemiah because what's interesting about this is that Ruth is a story embedded within the Old Testament context and not everyone seemed to be on board with what Ruth is teaching. Ezra and Nehemiah, for example, they say, hey, if you're married to a Moabite woman, you must divorce her and put her out. You cannot do that. You cannot intermarry with these people. It was this big thing about not allowing other people to become part of Israel. And there's this conversation within our own sacred text where we have the book of Ruth and Boaz is showing mercy and compassion and generosity to a Moabite woman. And Ezra and Nehemiah saying, "Mm mm-mm, we don't do that. And within our own text, we've got these tensions between different authors. And most people would think that they're written roughly around the same time. And I think it's so cool that within the Bible, we have a dialogue. We have um, a discussion about how it is that we're supposed to be treating these people and how we are supposed to be allowing them into our community. It all leads to this question though, what about us? What can we do with this ancient story? And there's a lot of like really easy connections there as we're talking about the immigrant and the widows and the orphans and how we are meant to treat them and how we are meant to, to help them in different circumstances and contexts. All week, I couldn't shake this. And I don't know how good of a preaching type moment this is, but when I think about this story, when I think about Boaz and the way that he welcomes in the stranger, the text that I keep thinking about is the passage of the Good Samaritan. I don't wanna have a lot of commentary on this. You guys know though that I don't oftentimes mean that, but I will, I think, keep my comments brief here as I just read this story to you. The only thing that I'll say about this is, for an ancient audience, when Jesus tells this story, the ending was completely jarring for these people. Infuriating, perhaps. How they would be so ticked that the hero of the story would be their shared enemy, a Samaritan. Notice at the end of this story, the legal expert can't even say the guy's place of origin. A legal expert stood up to test Jesus. This is Luke chapter 10. Teacher, he said, what must I do to gain eternal life? I have to say this too. Notice what Jesus does here. If you were to ask most pastors to define how we get eternal life, their answers will probably not look very similar to Jesus's. Jesus replied, what is written in the law? How do you interpret it? He responded, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the legal expert wanted to prove that he was right. So he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replies, as he so often does, in a way that will befuddle you 
and make you leave thinking, what the heck just happened? He tells a story. A man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He encountered thieves who stripped him naked, beat him up, and left him near death. Now it just so happened that a priest was also going down the same road. When he saw the injured man, he crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. Likewise, a Levite came by that spot, saw the injured man, and crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. A Samaritan, who was on a journey, came to where the man was. But when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, tending them with oil and wine. Then he placed the wounded man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took two full days worth of wages and gave them to the innkeeper. He said, take care of him. And when I return, I will pay you back for any additional costs. What do you think? Which one of these three was a neighbor to the man who encountered thieves? The legal expert said, the one who demonstrated mercy toward him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. We have this passage in Ruth, which demonstrates a man of high character who sees a woman on the outskirts and the margins, an immigrant who has no other way of making it. And he cares for her. We see the example that he sets and perhaps there's something for us to glean from this passage where we too become a people who care for the immigrants and the widows and the orphans. Even a couple of weeks ago when we talked about those gleaning laws and the question being, what does it look like for us in our context to leave some stuff behind? And Jesus's story here about the good Samaritan, the one who is an unlikely character, a foreigner, who views his own neighbor as anyone in need. This story, when I, when I hear it, it does the exact same thing that it was meant to do 2,000 years ago. It stops us in our tracks and it makes us assess who we are and who we help and who sits at our table and who we see in our lives on the margins and the outskirts, the people that need help and how we choose to either invite them in and help them and be an image of Jesus to them or choose just to step on by. We see in this passage is challenging. Robert Stein says of the parable of the um, Good Samaritan, Jesus and Luke sought to illustrate that the love of one's neighbor must transcend all natural or human boundaries such as race nationality, religion, and economic or educational status. We see within Ruth and the picture that we have of her being a risk taker and one who is trying to provide for her mother-in-law and how Boaz attacks the situation. Who is this woman and how can I help her? If we could share some of that same character if we too could care about these people that might be underrepresented in our society, how much of an impact might that make for the name of Jesus Christ? How much good might that do for the reputation of the church when we actually begin to do what Jesus is asking us to do, to care for people, to act like their neighbors, 
to help them in whatever way that we are able. My hope tonight is that we don't just let this story and Jesus's teaching be something that we leave here, but perhaps as we um, begin to reflect and move towards communion, we can begin to think about the people in our lives that might need help. What's cool about this last thought about Boaz, he keeps saying, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord pay you back for all of your faithfulness, Ruth. And the way that Boaz does that, he does not wait for God to rip open the skies and to be nice to Ruth. He does it for him. Boaz becomes the agent that God uses to restore Ruth and Naomi. We too can become agents of justice and grace and reconciliation with the different people that God has placed in our lives, whether they be immigrants, widows, orphans, or just the chance people that we meet. Thanks again for joining us. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to visit us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story is, there's room for you here. And again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. Hope to see you soon.